This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI TV. Welcome back. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. I'm Mike Ross filling in for the vacationing Dave Brown. It's Friday, so that means we are reassembling our news panel. Time to welcome in to show our panelists. Juwita Gupta is here. Good morning, Juwita. Good morning, Mike. And Michelle McQuig is back with us, too. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Mike. How's it going? Uh, very well. Thank you very much. Uh, all right. Our first story um, in the uh, panel discussions today is uh, about the attacks in Saskatchewan uh, this past weekend that have raised a number of questions. The stabbings that left 10 people dead and over a dozen people injured put the criminal justice system into focus. And it's been revealed the now deceased suspect had an extensive criminal record and was known to police. Michelle? This is the topic that you've brought to the panel here. Um, Why did the criminal justice angle on this story grab your attention? Come into focus over the past week because it was such a fluid situation for four days straight. And you were were so, uh, or those newsroom nerds among us were so sort of consumed with the day-to-day developments of, is he still out there? Are there going to be any more deaths, et cetera, that some of the broader picture issues didn't necessarily snap into focus. But this one did start to because of the parole board documents that a number of outlets were able to get their hands on, including Canadian press. Uh, It turns out Miles Sanderson's criminal history went back nearly a decade. There was a well-documented correlation between his acts of violence in his past and substance abuse. There were numerous red flags raised in the parole board reports and documents about a history of domestic violence, for instance, escalating attacks uh, longer and longer terms in prison, uh, very targeted attacks against members of his community. And then, in fact, it all came to pass this exactly this way this past week with 10 people dead, 18 injured, and he's also a suspect in the death of his brother. Uh, So there's just a lot to unpack potentially about, you know, what kind of red flags should have jumped out. Uh, Police handling of this sort of story is always a big one at the best of times, but we are talking about the RCMP, who also has a particularly checkered history around these sorts of things, uh, specifically in light of the 2020 shooting in Nova Scotia. So I thought we'd all have a certain amount to chew on with this kind of topic. Absolutely. Joita, what did you make of uh, the the criminal past uh, of uh, Sanderson? as it emerged earlier this week, I remember, uh, you know, on Tuesday morning, uh, reading an article f- uh, from the Globe and Mail on the Globe and Mail today, which just it, it literally almost was uh, a transcript of uh, the the rap sheet. Mm-hmm. And it just like I, as I was reading it, it, it sort of struck me like it was just one offense after another. And it, it almost felt like it. it it wasn't even a progression as far as the level of violence that I was reading. It was just all violent and and, and horrific. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think you've both made the point that he had a very checkered past and had a number of red flags, was clearly known to the police and has been in and out of the justice system. 
He has about a decade's history of domestic violence and has been uh, accused of the attempted uh, murder of his father-in-law. And so he has really been someone that the police was aware of to, uh, to an extent. The other thing that becomes evident when you look at his criminal profile is that he did have a history of alcohol and drug use as a young person. And I think that is an important factor in the story as well, not to mention that um, he had a lot of instability as a child growing up. Uh, he went a bit, he was shuffled between two homes, uh, his father's home and his grandfather's home on reserve, and there was a lot of domestic violence in both of those homes. I'm not trying to necessarily be sympathetic towards him, but I am making the point that he does fit a profile. He is someone who's had an ins an, an a highly unstable childhood and teenage years. Um, and he's also someone with a long history of offenses. So you could have made the argument or you could make the argument that given his checkered past, the police should have been keeping a very close eye on him. But I'm going to make sort of the philosophical argument that even if he had been given a longer sentence, let's say he'd been given a 10 to 15 year sentence for the kinds of crimes he was accused of having committed, he would have gotten out in maybe 10 to 15 years. Let's make that argument. And when he was out and about in society again, he would have been someone who would likely have reoffended again. And that brings me to my philosophical point, which is about the role of prisons. More often than not, and this is the part of the criminal justice, the, this is the criminal justice angle of the story that truly resonates with me. More often than not, prisons have become warehouses for people who are dealing with substance abuse and addictions and other problems. When people don't get treatment and support in prisons, when we sort of think of prisons as being punitive rather than rehabilita rehabilitative in nature, then we end up with situations like Miles Sanderson. I mean, he has uh, many problems in his life and the community uh, paid the price for the failure of the criminal justice system. In this yeah, respect. I agree with you. And, and another case that sort of falls under the, the, the same sort of umbrella was the mass shooting that happened in Memphis uh, earlier this week. And I heard the mayor of Memphis talking yesterday about uh, the fact that the, the suspect in that case was released from prison earlier than, than the full length of his sentence. And the comment was, if he had served his full, I think it, I'm going to throw out three years. I, I don't recall if it was exactly that. But if he'd served his full three-year sentence, four people would be alive today. And I sat there and I, I was in a parking lot when I was listening to the, the comments on the radio. And I thought, okay, well, they might have been there today. Mm -hmm. But who's to say that at the end of those three years when he got out, four other people wouldn't be dead because it, as you point out, we, we're not addressing, all, all we're addressing is the length of a sentence. We're not addressing why, what the person is, is doing while they're incarcerated and what we want out of that prison system. If all it is is to, to say they have to go there because they have to be segregated from society and they have to be punished and, you know, they have to serve their entire sentence – then what's to say that when they are released from prison, serving that full sentence, that things would have a different uh, outcome, rather? 
Because if we're, I think we really need to examine what we expect from the prison system, and and you know how how important is rehabilitation, and 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 wanting to have people reintegrate themselves into society and not reoffend, or at least lower maybe the the expectation of uh, of being you know a reoffend or to reoffend rather. I just sort of sat there scratching my head and say, well, what do you want out of the prison system? And I think that's a big question, Michelle. And it's kind of, it's questions like that that are being asked now, but I think it also speaks to not only do we want out of the criminal justice system and what kind of social supports need to be integrated into that. Do is it, it, it this is, you know, a system that could perhaps use some broader acknowledgements that it's not just as easy as, you know, convict and incarcerate. But it does speak to some broader social safety net questions. What happens to people who get out or what happens to people to prevent them from becoming part of the carceral system in the first place? We're talking about housing. We're talking about poverty. We're talking about all kinds of factors that really play into society at large here. And it's hard to discuss any aspect of this as discrete from one another. I think they all operate in in tandem, to be honest. So it's questions like that that I think are going to be interesting and, and that I'm... I'm going to be interested to see what is going to happen when the parole board undertakes a review that it has now promised to do in light of the Sanderson situation, mm-hmm. um, you know, to see what may come out of that, what kind of, kind of gaps that they do find, because this is definitely going to be one to watch. Uh, they, they have all the paperwork they need to to comb through and reach some interesting conclusions. Uh, but I, we don't have a timeline on when that's going to be, and we don't know exactly what the scope of the inquiry is. Yeah. Um, so well, to be seeing what happens there. What we do have a timeline on was that uh, he had stopped seeing his parole officer for several mm-hmm. months. And to in, me, in May, I like mean, five months. Yeah. I, I mean, that, that's a huge red flag for me. But I also think it speaks to the, the lack of funding for jobs like parole officers. And so, so, so here's my, my my sort of hot take on uh, on spending on the ju- the 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 justice system in this country. It's kind of like healthcare. You know, where do you want to spend? How much do you want to spend? And where are you going to cut in order to 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 make that a priority? Mm-hmm. That that's the the big question. I mean, healthcare and education. You know, at the provincial level always seem to be the ones that are the, the, the financial, uh, the, the punching bag for, for the bean counters where we need to cut some money. Okay, that, those are the first two spots where we cut it. But not having ever looked at a government's books and seen all the numbers laid out for me, I don't know where else you can cut and what a, uh, sort of reallocations of funds you can make. But all we've heard for now several years is the importance of spending money and paying attention to mental health issues and to addiction issues. And it seems like this is exactly what we're talking about. This is one of the many ways that we need to look at mental health spending and investment in this country. And when I hear a politician talk about their investing, well, that's an investment, right? When you're spending uh, money on, uh, on, on highways, that's not an investment. That's not an investment. That's just continuing to spend on things that you need to spend on as a government. Mental health uh, and, and health care uh, dollars, that's an investment. I, I, I really feel strongly about that. Uh, the RCMP is another angle on this that we'll, we'll sort of end on. Um, Michelle, how do you feel you know, they come out of this situation uh, right out of the gate being criticized um, and, and, and comparing the... Nova Scotia mass shooting 
to this incident? Yeah, I feel it, I feel like it's a bit too early to say if those two cases are totally analogous. I feel like there may be a bit of an apples and oranges dimension to this, uh, just in light of how long things played out. But there definitely are some questions that have emerged for, for me and for several others. Um, in terms of alerting the public, that part seems to have gone a bit more smoothly than it did in Port-a-Pic. They were definitely much more proactive in reaching out to people, sending alerts. That's how we at CP were able to start getting the story moving. That's how we got the sense that there was anything developing at all out there. Um, so that part improved, but there are questions to be raised. For one, the extent of Miles Sanderson's criminal history and violent past did not come out, and I suspect some people might wonder why that kind of information wasn't shared as part of the public alerts. Uh, there's also the whole situation from, I believe it was Tuesday, when uh, there was an alarm going out that he was back in the community that he had originally targeted and a whole bunch of cops swept in on this and descended on the community. They were already very on edge, deeply traumatized from what's happened. And then false alarm, he's not here. It's hard to say what really happened there or if there are grounds to criticism until we can hear the police's side of the story, which won't be for some time, I don't think. Uh, but I don't think they're going to walk away without a whole lot of scrutiny about how they handled aspects of this. Although, you know, at the end of the day, he was arrested uh, he has died. He died in police custody. That's a whole other set of mm. questions to, to resolve. Uh, we don't know what happened there at all at this point. Um, but he was ultimately arrested without additional loss of life beyond Sunday. Juita? You know, in addition to all the things that Michelle has pointed out, I think the questions about why he died in custody are very pressing. And people have, uh, have a lot of eyebrows went up when that announcement was made. Um, the... Other uh, angle that I will touch on is just around why it might have taken so long to apprehend uh, the two suspects. Remember, we started out with Damien and Miles Sanderson. And I think it opens up this whole conversation about the unique challenges around rural policing. If you uh, lived in Toronto and you were in a getaway car, you probably wouldn't have been able to avoid the police in the way you have been. You would have been able to do in rural Saskatchewan driving up and down highways. So I think there are some particularities or specificities around the logistics of rural policing that would be very interesting to get into. Unlike the Nova Scotia situation where the police was roundly criticized and soundly criticized for not alerting the public uh, adequately or efficiently enough, in this instance, at least in the local area, the police did manage, the RCMP did manage to issue an alert within two hours. So I suppose there is some improvement, but there is still there are questions about the scope of that alert, as Michelle mentioned, and whether even in in this instance they might have taken too long. Um, the thing with Miles Sanderson is going to be very interesting to see whether the police should have monitored him uh, a little bit closer. Remember that uh, he was tech. Miles Sanderson was technically out of law. Uh, uh, he had to, he was technically in violation of his parole. And so the way that I understand this is he's technically flagged with the police, but he's only ever you know uh, the way this is dealt with is if he was pulled over for a traffic offense, they'd say, "Hey, wait a minute, you're also uh, you know you haven't been seeing your parole officer." But it maybe there was an argument there that someone with this a dangerous offender, someone with this incredible history of violence. They should have perhaps the police should have been more proactive in tracking this person down. Uh, so I have a lot of questions about this. But the other thing that I'll close out by saying is just this morning, I read some coverage in the CBC about 
the James Creek uh, Cree First Nation wanting uh, some form of tribal policing and having some conversations about indigenous representation in the police force. And I think there is uh, as yet uh, unexplored questions about the role of colonization and racism in this in this particular case and whether we need to be thinking about policing being more community oriented and more re- and police forces including the RCMP being more representative of the communities that they serve yeah I, I I know that in Alberta there's a lot of talk happening right now about the role of the RCMP and whether they want a, a provincial police force of their own that can better patrol and and serve rural areas of the province and that's certainly one of the first things that jumped out on, on this case was you're not dealing with a huge police force in a metropolitan area. You're dealing with a a sort of a northern spot of the province that is not heavily populated. And you're dealing with a smaller police force that's that's dealing with uh, a very dangerous situation. And I think from the communication standpoint, some might even say that they, they, they went above and beyond what they may have done in the past because of what had happened in Nova Scotia and the fact that it was the same police force, the national force, dealing with the situation. Um, but I think it's going to, again, we're going to have a, another reevaluation of, uh, of policing in rural areas and what's the best way to do it. And uh, I'm anxious to see what kind of conclusions we're going to come out of that uh, with. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.